This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey everybody, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Casual Podcast. Please leave a review on iTunes. I know I say that all the time, but it really helps us attract better guests to the podcast. And also share it with your friends, because if you don't, soon you won't have any friends to have a midday lunch with when you're reaping the words of all your passive cash flow. Today on the line, I have Brad Baldridge. How are you doing, Brad? Hi, great to be here. So Brad is a late-stage college planning specialist. He helps the parents of high school students plan and pay for college using cool strategies such as merit aid, need-based aid, tax planning, savings, and investing for college. And he also helps negotiate with colleges for scholarships and loans. I don't have kids, but I know a lot of the listeners talk a lot about sending their kids to college because a lot of them did. And they also talk about private school for high school. All I know is that there's things called like the 529 and covered Earl. So why don't we start there? One obvious thing that families can do is they can save and invest for college. So when you mentioned 529 and Coverdell, that's essentially what that would be. Those are accounts typically at some form of mutual fund company where you can save and invest um, for college. And the reason we say it's for college is because of the way the tax breaks work, which essentially if you contribute to a college savings plan, it grows tax deferred. And if you take it out and spend it on college, it you can take it out tax free. So it makes a lot of sense, especially if you're saving for a, a youngster where you know, if you put in $10,000 and it grows and now, now you take out 20 and you can get all 20 tax free, well, that obviously is a more efficient way to pay for college. I think especially because, you know, a lot of investors in real estate are in upper income brackets and they're at least paying some taxes and you know, often quite a bit of taxes. So any tax break that they can get makes sense. So is it um, kind of like a, uh, a 401k, a Roth IRA or a HSA? How's it mimic? Yeah, it's it's like all of those things where you can choose the investment within the program, specifically about 529s. You know, 529s are state sponsored. So every state just about has some form of 529. And if you use your local state program, you might get some additional benefits than if you use a different state, but there's no requirement. So as an example, if you're here in Wisconsin, you get a small Wisconsin state tax break for using the Wisconsin plan. Um, and it's not, I guess it's not tiny, but it's, it's certainly worth doing. Um, but in your state, you may get a tax break where you want to use the, the one for your state, or you can certainly choose to use other states as well. So the rules for the, on that would be you can use any college plan for any college in any state. You just might get a little bit of a better tax break if you choose your in-state plan. Why would somebody choose the Coverdell over the 529 or vice versa? Right. So the Coverdale is similar to the 529. It grows tax deferred. You take it out tax free. The challenge is the Coverdale has very low contribution limits. I believe it's still $2,000 per year. So if you're only doing small amounts, it may make sense. The big benefit to a Coverdale is you can use that money on education beyond college. So you could use it for private high school, as an example. The disadvantage, again, is it has relatively low comp- contribution limits. So most people need to be saving more than what's allowed in a Coverdell. Plus, if you use your local in-state 529 plan, as I mentioned, you might get some additional breaks that would not be available for the Coverdell. So if you're saving for college and you know it's for college, 
most likely the 529 is a good fit. If you're saying, well, we might spend it on high school or we want a little bit more flexibility, then a Coverdell might be a good place. And you can always split it too. You can do both. So you could put up to the limit in your Coverdell and then put the rest in the 529 or however you see fit. Yeah, that's kind of how I see filling the buckets. Do the Coverdell first because, I mean, even if you're diligent and you start saving when you're like 20 years old, by the time you need the money at $2,000 a year, 20 years later, I mean, you're not going to have too much. I mean, that's USC is going to eat up that in one year. So, yeah, it could be. So max the Coverdell out and then go to the 529. So again, if you've got a lot of tax breaks, I wouldn't do that here in Wisconsin. I would consider maxing the tax breaks in the Wisconsin plan first. Again, because, you know, again, typically I'm working with parents in high school, but even then it makes sense where you know, we can save between one and $3,000 per student by using the 529 instead of a Coverdell. Plus, you can still get the tax deferred growth and other things. So, I mean, it really depends. You really, really want to plan accordingly. I'm not going to say you always do it one way or the other because I can give you examples that would go both ways. But more importantly, you need to understand it and figure that out for yourself so that you actually do something because that's the reality is most people don't do anything when it comes to saving and investing for college. A lot of people just get lost in this stuff, but it doesn't take too long to just Google this stuff and learn it in 30 minutes. So let's talk algebra expenses. So you mentioned the cover door has a little bit more flexibility. Are we, do these things just, are they just reimbursable or apply to like, you know, college tuition or can we also pay for the dorm room or rent for the kids? Yes. And yep, all that's covered. So and school supplies and beer and is not required school supplies are. So you can't really get your pencils unless the college professor says you have to have this particular pencil. But if you needed equipment, you're asked to buy, I don't know, safety equipment for a particular lab. So you needed to have, I don't know, safety goggles or a wetsuit or something. Well, then if it was required, then you could, that would be an eligible expense. But the big ones would be tuition and fees, room and board uh, and books and a, a computer. So those are the big ones. And then required you know, equipment would also be covered, but that most people don't spend a lot of money there. And then room and board would be the cost that you actually spend. If you're in the dorm and you're paying for a meal plan, then you those actual numbers would qualify. If you're living off campus, you can still deduct, but now you just have to track your expenses and keep your receipts of groceries and you know your share of the cable bill and your share of the heat and your share of the rent and that type of thing. Um but all that would still be deductible up to the cost of the dorm. So if you're, if you're renting a f fantastic place and spending lots and lots of money, then you'd be limited to what a dorm would have cost. On the other hand, if you have seven roommates and your costs are really, really low, then your limit might be what you actually spent. So and again, just, so just kind of understanding how that works. Um, but both of those are certainly an option as far as how 529s can help. And the reality of it is for most families, you're going to be needing to set money aside for college anyway. You know, again, the typical family I'm working with might have, say, sophomores or juniors as we get started into this. And it's like, all right, well, based on what's going on, we probably should be putting away a thousand a month somewhere because we know college is coming. It's coming quick. You know, where are we going to put it? Well, again, a lot of times 529 makes sense. A lot of times people also say, well, I wish, uh, you know, based on all the tax benefits and investment opportunities, I wish I would have done this when they were two. And so if you happen to be listening and you have a two-year-old, you know, the sooner the better. 
but again, also it's never too late. So say I do have a tour road and there might be a small chance that a kid gets to graduation day and he decides that he doesn't want to go to college and use any all this money that I put into these Coverdales and 529s and he just wants to do pot all day long or that mm-hmm. is do ceramics or something. Take that career yep. path. Uh, yeah. What do we do with all this money? Is it trapped? Well, no, you could always take money out if you receive scholarships up to the, up to the benefit of those scholarships. You can take money out and pay taxes and penalties on it, or you can transfer it to a different beneficiary. So the typical situation, of a, if you've got parents with multiple kids, they can always switch it over to a brother or sister and, and use it for them instead. Um, but yes, so it is possible that you could have, quote unquote, too much money in a 529. I very seldom see people that are anywhere near that kind of number, but it is possible where you could say, we have so much money in here based on what we are actually going to do, we, we can't spend it all. You can transfer it. You can take penalties. You can also save it or use it for grad school. You, you can switch it back to the parents and they can spend it on their own education. Um, so there's lots you can do. It's a good problem to have. Let's put it that way. Maybe we'll dig into some of the common things that you see. But you know, the listeners on here, we've got rental properties and pretty financially stable, but we keep on playing this game between saving for today and saving for the future that may not come to fruition, you know, the kids could not go to college or could not even need to do that. As investors, we're a little different, you know, for every money that we sock into a covered dough or 529, that's one less rental we're buying or one less money that we're putting into a syndication that could be making 20, 30% every single year. So we're a little bit different than the average investor. Maybe take us through the mindset of like, how do we create a plan with these uh, educational retirement accounts. And I guess that's part of the, the puzzle. In a lot of cases, you could be doing more late stage planning, which is you grow the money and once it's time to actually take it out and spend it, maybe you would cycle it through a 529 in the short term just to get some tax benefits and then spend it on college shortly thereafter. So you might get the same tax contribution benefits if you contribute for a two-year-old as compared to a 20-year-old. So I have seen situations where parents would sell a rental property at college time, let's say, and say, well, you know, I'm going to net $100,000 cash. I'm going to use that money to pay for college. Now, of course, you don't have a $100,000 cash bill in one year. It's over a few years. So then maybe in the interim, you would drop that into a 529 or some other vehicle in order to have it available when you need it and still get a few tax benefits along the way. But yeah, if you, if you know for certain that you're going to get a substantially better rate of return elsewhere compared to what you would get choosing investments inside of 529, well, then maybe you give up on the tax benefits because you're better off to earn the money, pay the taxes, and still have more money in your pocket. But I'm also guessing there's a lot of situations where you're not earning that kind of rate of return. And it's more of a, we can get 7% here or 7% there, well, let's get the tax benefits and 7% instead of no tax benefits and 7%. Right. And this is something I'll, I'll argue someone blue in the face about taking your money out of the 401k out of those, as we say, garbage investments in those mutual funds and putting it into direct investments into real estate where you're in control. Um, I made sort of the same thing with my health savings account. I had enough money in there that where I could self-direct it. Am I able to self-direct a covered dough or a 529? Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by self-direct. A 529 has a menu of choices similar to a 401k in that you get to choose which one from a limited menu. 
Okay. So, so you can choose the aggressive, or the conservative, the stocks, the bonds, the international. But again, there's a limited menu that you have to deal with. Now, a Coverdell is more like an IRA where many different investment companies offer them. So you might be able to get a little broader choices, but you still have to play within the, the guidelines. I see. So there is no self-directed option for these uh, investors. You still have to go off a set menu. Correct. Brad, take us through a typical planning session. What are some things that you know people forget about when they're doing this that right. kind of bite them at the end? I a couple different areas. Well, one is people just not understanding that there's a lot of planning that they can be doing around college. So something that would be a little more focused to your listeners, you know, for as an example, real estate is an asset when you figure out financial aid. Um, and you also, you know, so financial aid is based on income and assets of mom and dad and the student. Now, for if you're self-employed, you might be able to control your income and potentially drive it very low in the college years, which may make you eligible for more aid. So that's one strategy where if you, again, if you're self-employed or you know, maybe you choose to plow a lot of money back into your business at the same time college is happening so that your income is relatively low and you're eligible for additional aid. And that strategy works depending on the school that you're attending. So not all school, just because you need money based on your financial aid formulas doesn't mean you're going to get it. On the flip side, if you don't need it, then there's no way you're going to get any sort of need-based aid. This is the game that you play with the period coming up. And then I guess do they still call it the FASA. Yep. You fill out the FAFSA and also the CSS profile is an additional form that some people will be required to fill out as well. Right. So so the game to play is to show that you own nothing and you make, don't make too much money so you can get a lot of financial aid in the form of the, the subsidized student loans or the unsubsidized if you're unlung, unlucky. Right. Or it could be also be scholarships or grants from the college or it could be Pell grants and other grants from the government. So Again, depending on what area we're playing in. I mean, bringing your income down from 400000 to 300000 probably isn't going to make much difference. But bringing your income down from 100000 to 30000 could make a huge difference. So what if uh, I'm a smart real estate investor that puts everything into my S-Corp and I start funneling everything as dividends as opposed to income or, to, or just don't take anything for an X amount of years before it's FOSA application time? Is there some kind of strategy oh, yeah. there? Oh, absolutely. I've had business owners all the time that say, because of what I'm doing, I'm going to drive my income you know, down to $30,000. The challenge, of course, is planning well enough in advance so that you have money to live on if you're not pulling money where you normally get money from. So you need to have enough tucked away to coast for a couple of years. Um, and I've had other situations, you know, like in 2007, 2008, I had a number of business owners that didn't really plan to have their income go to zero, but it happened anyway. Um, so as long as we were there, it made sense to um, take advantage of it and work really hard on our assets as well. Because again, need-based aid is based on your income and your assets. Uh, typically, real estate would be considered an asset, but it's also important to realize it's the net value of the asset. So... Sometimes when, you know, and again, that's that catch 22 that a lot of real estate investors are dealing with is when they're trying to get loans and qualify for that type of thing. And then they want everything to look really good. And then when it comes to around to tax time, they don't want to go the other direction. Um, the same can be said with, you know, financial aid. If you, you can shrink the value of your assets, because as an example, 
it's the net value of your real estate, assuming a 30-day sale and assuming all costs are in there. So you could, as an example, certainly deduct your cost of the mortgage, but also the cost of the realtors, the capital gains taxes you might have to pay, the fact that you're selling it in a down market or repairs or all the other things that would, you know, it's what what you would walk away with in a check at closing, assuming a 30-day fire sale. Not if everything was perfect, what would I get? But what is a realistic, you know, and again, where that line is that, you know, that's a constant battle that we're dealing with the IRS around taxes as well. Is a building worth a million or is it worth a million too? Well, <laughs> until somebody writes a check, you don't know for certain. Or is it going to cost like $300,000 to paint it too before selling? or other- Right, Exactly. And all those things, right? So it's subject to all the other things that are happening around real estate with the appraisers and the, you know, if we're talking about taxes, we want it to go one way. And if we want it, you know, if we're selling it, we want it to go the other way. And the real answer is usually somewhere in between. But just understanding that that's part of the puzzle. I've had a number of people that have real estate where it's cash flow positive in actuality, but by the time you factor in depreciation and those types of things, it's cash flow negative. And it's providing a big benefit to their financial aid form. Now, on the flip side of it, there's a whole lot of people out there that are successful enough either because they have additional work or whatever it might be where they just really can't get their income so low. A lot of the people I work with do not qualify for need-based aid and there's nothing they can do about it. They just have to essentially give up on that idea and just move on to things like tax planning. Which again, if you look at shifting income and shifting assets to the students, if you had a $10,000 cash flow and you could have it come in the student's name, so the student pays the taxes instead of the parents. Again, a lot of parents are in 25, 35, 38, 39% tax brackets. And the students could have a similar income and pay uh, substantially less taxes. And something that occurred to me again when you're talking about the price of the real estate, what's that rule that pigs get greedy, hogs get slaughtered or something like that? Exactly. uh, Is there a sort of window that you have to start really thinking about this before you start doing your FOSA application, the kind of being really smart, what what income or deductions you start to show? Like, for example, you know, when you're going for a Fannie Mae loan, the look back is a couple years or something like that, or, you know, you need to have seasoning for six months and certain funds. Is there, what are the guidelines now? Right. So the way the financial aid forms work is they use what's called prior, prior year. So if your student is graduating, let's say you have a senior right now who's graduating in a couple months. Well, the seniors that are graduating right now filled out their financial aid forms based on 2015 taxes or what we, and this is a recent change. So if you're saying that, that you don't remember it this way, if you've been through it before, that's because this is the second year where we've done prior, prior year. So the prior, prior year is essentially two years before graduation. So that's the tax form that you're going to use. And you're going to sign the forms in the fall of your senior year. So again, 2017 graduates that are seniors right now, their assets were kind of locked in last November. So whatever their assets were worth on November when they signed the form, that's what they had to live with. You happen to sell a rental property in October. Well, then that is no longer an asset. And then whatever cash you have or whatever the wherever the money went would be more applicable. What was it before? Yeah, it was only one year back. Getting more and more restrictive then. They want right. 
They're trying to close well, more and more loopholes. Really, that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because it was a major rush. Because you would have to quite literally, if you had a senior right now and it was based on 2016, you would have to finish your taxes right now so that you could actually you'd have to finish them in February or March or January even in order to have the data in order to fill out the financial aid forms. In an effort to reduce that pressure, now they're allowing you to use 2015 taxes, which for most people are completely done and put to bed and easy to work with. Whereas 2016, you know, it's probably the people that are listening. A lot of them are doing complex real estate work and so forth. So they might be filing extensions or certainly using most of the time and not typically not filing till April or May at the earliest, which doesn't work well when it comes to college. Then the other important thing to realize is they also do this every year. So you're going to apply again for your sophomore year, your junior year, and your senior year. And if you have multiple kids, you might be filling out financial aid forms for 10 years in a row. So it's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing thing. So even if you had a senior, let's say, and you're stuck with whatever happened in 2015, you can't really go back and change much. But right now you could fix 2017 potentially, and that would help you for your junior year. When I got smart and sold my primary residence to start investing in investments that actually made sense, whoo, I needed a place to diversify quickly as opposed to some money market or some high reward checking account. Let's face it, turnkey rentals are cool and civic vacations are great, but they don't come around often. I stumbled upon the American Homeowner Preservation Fund. The owner, George Newmary, once apartment syndicator too, is now sponsoring the podcast. His fund cuts the middleman out to crowdfund the solution to the mortgage crisis in America. They are empowering you to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages and earn returns that smoke any other passive fund. If you find something else better out there, let me know. Oh yeah, they work with families to keep them in their home after buying the underwater note at a huge discount. It's an opportunity to make an impact on families and communities while earning returns. Start investing. Investing with as little as 100 bucks in investinhp.com. If you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. I've got a couple of fringe ideas in my head. Now, a lot of the baby boomers, a lot of them aren't very good with money. And the reason why the family is so affluent is because of the generation before them. Uh, with that said, the, the wealth, can we stuff the wealth back into that the grandparents' generation and hide it from the FASA? Yes and no. Okay, so if you talk about what what is as an asset for financial aid forms, generally they draw a bubble around the family, right? So it's mom and dad and the student. Um, anything outside of that is not considered an asset. So grandma and grandpa could have a big pile of money, earmarked for college. You don't have to report it. Now the challenge comes in. One of the questions of the FAFSA is any of your expenses been paid by somebody other than the family? So once grandma and grandpa actually write the check for $20,000 and send it off to the school or give it to whoever, now technically it would be income to the student. But again, if you look at kind of the offset, the fact that as an example, right, we're looking back two years. Well, grandma and grandpa, if they give something right now to a senior, they're going to be messing up their junior year. But if grandma and grandpa give something to a college junior, there's a good chance that it'll never show up because that junior will be graduated before he has to fill out a financial aid form that's relevant to to that particular year. So now it's kind of timing when money comes from which bucket and making sure it's appropriate. 
So maybe mom and dad can exhaust their funds in freshman, sophomore year, and then grandma and grandpa can bail them out junior, senior year. Exactly. Um, assuming that's going to happen. And again, this is all predicated on the fact that you believe you're going to get some benefit from financial aid to begin with. And in a lot of cases, you're not going to get any aid. So there's no point in worrying about it. You can do whatever you want. The answer is always going to be no aid. And if the answer is always no aid, well, then do stuff that's appropriate as far as getting good investment returns, getting better tax treatment, those types of things. Right. And Sometimes. ignore need-based aid. Yeah, sometimes better offense is better than good defense. Making Correct. more money is better than all these tax things at some point. Another idea I had was what if we had set up a trust or irrevocable trust? Is that outside of the eyes of the FASA? Generally not. Okay. Otherwise, everybody would just set up a trust and say, all right, now I'm eligible for a bunch of aid. So that one, they closed the door on that one pretty quickly um, long ago. So the only way that it would be considered an outside asset if it's an irrevocable trust where you truly have given up control, um, in which case, well, then it's not your asset and it is truly gone. But most people aren't willing to do that um, in general. So most of the typical trusts where the student or the parents are either the trustee or the beneficiary, then it's considered an asset. So even if you like, so a grandma leaves a half million dollars to the student and says, you can't have it till you're 25. So technically they don't have access to it for college, but then the, what the colleges would say, well, what's the present value of a future half million dollars? And that's what they'd count against you. Trust planning generally is not a good way to qualify for aid. And if you've got that kind of money, most of the time, the income is going to wipe you out anyway or other things anyway. So, you know, I'd be very careful doing something like that. All right. Well, I'm all out of ideas. Do you have anything, any other? Oh, absolutely. So, so real estate professionals certainly could hire their kids into their businesses and pay them a wage as a way to shift income. Real estate example would be you buy a four family in town near the school that your student's attending and they're the property manager and they live in one unit with a roommate and build it so it's cash flow positive. You know, again, I don't know much about the passive versus active portion of real estate investing, but I have had people explore that type of thing. Um, certainly hiring your kid into your business to run the books or mow the lawns or do that kind of stuff, which again, you're mentioning some of the stuff that you're doing is more passive where there already is a property manager. But on the other hand, maybe you could ask the property manager to hire your kid and say, well, I want you to pay my kid to mow the lawns at my building, but anything you can do to shift income off of mom and dad's taxes and move it to the students taxes can save you quite a bit in cost there. There's also a, what we call a tuition reimbursement plan. So a lot of large companies have them where if you work for us and you go back to school and you get an A, we'll reimburse you. If you get a B, we'll give you 80%. If you get a C or less, then we're not paying. Well, small company can set up tuition reimbursement plans as well. You know, so again, mom works for herself. She's a realtor, let's say. She could set up a tuition reimbursement plan for her employees and then hire her student to be the employee. You need to be careful because there's some attribution rules around S and C corps where the student may need to be 21 before it's effective. But grandma and grandpa could do it at any age as an example. So that can be effective. There's also a tax credit. So most families will qualify for a tax credit of $2,500 per year 
up to four years, but it phases out at incomes between uh, 160 and 180 if you're married and 80 to 90 if you're single, filing single. So that tax credit is pretty valuable. And I've had a lot of people that are just barely over the line and say, well, if I'd have just done things a, a little differently, I would have qualified for that credit. And if you've got multiple kids, again, for things like real estate, you might want to be bunching your property taxes or something in an effort to have some of those years where you're going to qualify, right? Because if you're just over the line and you don't qualify, well, if you bunch things, then a $5,000 or $7,500 tax credit if you've got multiple kids is probably worth fighting for for a lot of families. Yeah, you know, I think um, overall this all this college stuff is just, I mean, the prices are going up and up and up. And at some point for somebody getting a bachelor's of arts degree or some kind of arts program where you're just not going to get a job at the end of college, at some point it's just not making any financial sense. I mean, your ROI is like, five percent or less than five percent i mean i know that we all have been told that college is the way to go but what's your opinion brand i know you're in the industry so you see this a lot like i believe that there's going to be a education bubble i mean at some point these colleges yeah. aren't going to be able to command 50 60 70 thousand dollars a year it just doesn't make sense i would agree with that and to be honest with you they're they're already not commanding that right so a lot of the private schools have raised their top line price, but they've also raised their scholarships. So their net price is substantially less than what their sticker price is. And depending on the school and how much in demand they are, you know, big brand name schools like NYU and Harvard and University of Chicago, they get to dictate their prices and they can kind of hold the line if they want to. But a lot of the smaller, lesser known private schools have already kind of price themselves out of the market to the point where for some students, they might offer a 10 or 20 or $30,000 scholarship package in order to attract the student and get them to actually come. If you look at a typical cost of school, you know, on my website, I've got like the average cost of Wisconsin schools and Illinois schools up there. For people in the say 110,000 plus income category, the net cost of a state school might average about 17,000 and the net cost of a private school might average twenty five or twenty six thousand. So it, it does cost more, but not double like it does on the top line price. Again, because of discounts and that type of thing. Yeah, I see uh, another game they're playing too is like with all this online college stuff. I went to undergrad at University of Washington, got a great education, but then because my employer paid for a master's for me and I was working on the road all the time, I went and got a master's and I paid 70 grand doing that to get an online degree from the University of Washington. Nobody knows that it's a not a brick and mortar degree, but like, I mean, there's no overhead. I and mean, that thing definitely did not cost $70,000, but they were able to command it and my employer paid it. So I don't really care, but it's just getting ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, here's the challenge, right? When you talk about return on investment for college, that's kind of like saying, well, what's the return on, on investment for my car? If we'd use just those criteria, we'd all be driving the low cost, you know, low maintenance, high fuel efficient car. Yet, if you look on the road, there's all kinds of different cars out there because, yes, the dollars and cents is part of it, but it's not the only thing. And I think a lot of parents are in that same situation where, to some extent, they're not necessarily that concerned about ROI as much as they are as providing that college experience to their kids that they had. Um, and the fact that it costs more, you know, is not good, but a lot of times they're just going to tighten the belt and make it happen. And not always. So if you look at just at the math and certain degrees, right, if you're going to graduate with a pharmacy degree or an engineering degree or a nursing degree, 
they command pretty decent salaries right out of the gate. And it probably mathematically doesn't matter that much how much you spend because you'll earn enough relatively quickly and you can relatively easily pay back. You know, again, as an example, you're a nurse that starts at 70,000 a year, you know, depending on where, where you are in the country, obviously, but which is 25,000 a year more than your, your peers are starting at. Well, you have 2000 a month that you could apply to student loans. That's, quite a lot of cash flow and you probably can make up for the fact that you overborrowed or overspent. But again, as you mentioned, if you get a situation where you you end up at, you know, Starbucks or end up in a low paying career path or something. Long. Right, exactly. Then having spent a hundred thousand dollars more than you could have might be a fatal error. And I think that's where a lot of people are starting to say, well, is it worth it? Where's my return on investment? You know, I can, Another example is families can do things like, we'll start at a two-year or four-year local school, live at home, get a couple of years under your belt, and then transfer to the big name brand school. And there's some people can do it kind of haphazard, but there's also programs that, that are already pre-designed. It's a two-and-two two program. You go two years here, then two years there, and then when you graduate, you've got the same degree as anybody else. It's just that, you know, for the first two years, might have cost you substantially less. But Brad, the parties the first few years are the best. Exactly. Are we buying the education? Are we buying the experience? Do we want our kids to get out of the house and go grow up somewhere that's, uh, you know, a little ways away to get to some separation for everybody's sanity? What is the goal of college? And I think right now, you know, I think there's an opportunity for a college out there to say, we don't offer sports teams. We don't have health centers. We don't have anything but a good quality education. That's all we offer, but we're going to offer it at a much reduced price. And you're going to get the same education and the same degree. You're just not going to get the extra country club stuff of food, you know, nice food opportunities and sports and leisure and all the other stuff that comes with college. I think some colleges will go there. There's not a lot of them out there right now, but I think that's a possibility in the next 10 or 20 years. Again, as the prices get higher and people start studying the what am I getting and is it worth it a little more closely? Yeah, I've been putting a, um, a hedge fund hat on lately and been thinking about doing something like that. I think what you should do, Brad, is privatize student loans just for like engineering graduates. Well, there's a couple of companies out there that already do that, um, where they base some of their underwriting on the degree that you have and the college that you attended because they track it, of course. And they so they have statistics saying that these types of degrees from these types of schools, they never default. So we can give them really low rates. And these types of degrees from those types of schools we're not even interested in the default rates are too high. Yeah, that's already happening where some companies, and again, in the refinance market. Bottom line for most parents, though, is when you transition from early stage, and again, early stage is I've got a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a middle schooler. We know college is coming. We just don't know much detail yet. But we should probably save and invest or buy the right type of building so that we can sell it when we get there or, you know, what is our long-term strategy? And then I guess a bigger question than that is even how much are we going to pay? How much are we willing to pay? Are we going to pay at all? I mean, the system is set up such that parents that can afford to pay are kind of required to in that they're, the student's going to come up short and either the parents fill the gap or the student works really hard or it just doesn't happen. But there's no law that says parents must pay for college. You can just skip college. They can say no and the student can figure it out or skip it. But then when we move into late stage, and again, most parents that I'm working with value education. They want to make it happen. They're just trying to figure out how to make it happen and what's the most efficient way to make it happen. It's not a matter of, are we going to do it? It's a matter of, 
should we go to the expensive school or are we stuck at the low cost school? Uh, you know, should we borrow a bunch of money or a small amount of money? Should we sell this rental property in order to pay for college or should we keep the property and use the cash flow? You know, what works better? Are we going to qualify for need-based aid? All that stuff. And that's really late stage planning. And again, if you're a business owner or you have things that make your life a little more complex, like business and real estate and athletics and those types of things, you want to start a little bit earlier than the way we did it when we were kids, which was, so you might want to start freshman or sophomore year, at least as parents. Figure out, are you going to qualify for need-based aid, merit aid, saving and investing, loans? And there's a lot of different things that you can work on. Scholarships. And I think the difference between people who do well and don't do well has a lot to do with how much time and effort. Those who plan well are going to save a lot more money than those that don't plan well. Everything else being equal, right? You get the same education. You're going to get the same name brand school. You just might pay less if you, because there's so many moving parts. Again, it's a lot like real estate, right? There's so many moving parts that if you work at it, you might be able to find a, a leverage point or two and say, well, if I do this instead of that, that saved me five or $10,000 over my college career or maybe 50 or 100,000. It depends on your particular situation. All right. Well, thanks, Brad. I appreciate you coming on. Why don't you um, give everybody your contact information to get a hold of you if they have more questions? Absolutely. So I have a website, tamingthehighcostofcollege.com. I have also have a podcast. So there's a hundred and some episodes there all about late stage college planning primarily. So if you've got a high school kid and you're jumping into this, um, or if you're just uh, someone that likes to plan ahead and you've got younger kids and you want to f- learn about what's coming, you can listen to the podcast. There's a lot of great resources there as well, like an EFC calculator, which will help you figure out if you're going to qualify for need-based aid. There's the scholarship guide for busy parents, which will give you the lay of the land about scholarships. It's uh, four 10-minute videos. And you'll walk away from that knowing enough to say how and what you want to do around scholarships. Is it going to be 50 scholarship applications? or three scholarship applications, or we're just going to write that off and focus on other things. And if you ever have questions or want to contact me directly, you can, through the website, we've got a phone number, we've got email, however you want to get a hold of me. If you guys need help filling out those scholarship applications, I'm partnered with a virtual assistance company, and they can tackle that first draft for you. Shoot me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. They're actually doing some job applications for me at the moment. All right. Well, thanks, Brad. Appreciate you coming on. All right. Well, thanks for having me. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.